Well, good evening. Hey, welcome to Wednesday Night Community. We just took a break over Christmas um, and kind of took a little bit of time off, and we're, we're coming back together, starting a new, a new 10-week series here. But um, for, for those of you who maybe this is your first time, you're new to this community, Wednesday Night Community is a, is a gathering of people um, seeking to, to live out what it means to be Christ followers or apprentices of Christ in community. And we, we do a Bible study, and, and we worship, and um, the real reason why some of you come is we have good snacks, too, and coffee. Um, and this is kind of a laid-back format. So, you know, you're at tables, and there's, you know, people there, and I know if you're an introvert, that freaks you out, and that's okay. You don't have to talk to people, but uh, just put food in your mouth, and then you, you can't talk. But um, seriously, get up as we're... As we're um, Going through this evening, feel free to go back and get a coffee or a snack or anything like that sort of thing here this evening. Uh, one thing real quickly, if you picked up a bulletin on your way in, uh, two things that I, that I want to make you aware of uh, coming up if you turn over to the back of the bulletin. The first thing is we have an opportunity, really great opportunity here at Timberline on Sunday mornings. Uh, there are class classroom settings, kind of smaller settings than this, where we've got some fabulous facilitators and teachers. The first four classes that that you see listed there, I would invite you to this coming Sunday morning. If you're a young couple and you're looking for community, jump into this young young married's class. It's it's just an awesome, awesome setting. If you're looking for a Bible, more of a Bible study, um, we've got ones that are going over topical issues or books of the Bible. Uh, Roger's class for Indeed is, is great. So just some really, really cool opportunities. Secondly, this Friday, this is real last minute for you, if you don't know if you're not registered yet, but you still have another day here to register. In this room right here, uh, Wes Tucker, many of you will know Wes. Wes and I are, are um, going to be facilitating a, um, a time of, of study in the form of a simulcast um, there's a ministry called uh, RZIM, Ravi Zacharias. Some of you have heard of him. Uh, he, they're doing a simulcast on understanding and answering Islam. And that's, I don't even need to tell you that that's a relevant topic for us in our world today. So how, how is a, apprentices of Christ, are we to think about and respond to our Muslim neighbors and Islam in the world? So this is a great opportunity for that. If you're interested in that, it's Friday night and Saturday morning. Times are on the back of your bulletin. Please register online. It's uh, $15 if you register online or 20 bucks at the door. We're going to have breakfast burritos in the morning and snacks and all that sort of thing. So, again, we'll be kind of be back in this room, a little bit of a different setup. But um, we'll have that coming up here. Well, we're in a new series, starting a, a series that will lead us up to Easter um, we'll, we'll be spending about nine or ten weeks on this, looking at uh, Jesus and, and how he gave some kind of shocking answers to life's big questions. And I'm really, uh, I have to say, indebted in this series to a book that was written by Timothy Keller called Encounters with Jesus. And so I, I, I'm using that structure that, that he had in that book there of looking at these little vignettes in the Gospels. Jesus had these unique encounters, sometimes with an individual, usually, sometimes groups. And he ended up addressing not just the questions that were relevant to them, but kind of the the relevant questions that that hit all of us as humanity. And so I want to look at those. To kind of kick us off, um, turn your attention to the screen. I want to watch this this short little three-minute video that, that kind of tees up a question about who is this man Jesus? 
this question that presents us at the end of this video, it asks this question, who, you know, who, who was Jesus? This is a, this is a guy who, who lives, in a, lives in a small, small area, never wrote a book, only gathered small groups around him. And, and somehow billions of people name him as building their identity on him today. How, how are we to understand this? You know, is, is he a man, it asks us, or is there something more there? Is there really something more? What's so interesting is if you've, if you've ever opened up and read the Gospels, these first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so many of Jesus' encounters or interactions provoke the exact same thing at the end of every conversation. People always go, who is this guy? How, in a, and what they're saying is, what category do I put him in? Because he's a, he's a man, and yet he all, he's attributing things to himself, and he's claiming things, and he's doing things that are not in the kind of the, the man category. So how, how am I supposed to understand him? And many of the shocking things that Jesus said were, again, his answers to the really big questions of life. So tonight I want to look at two stories. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to the Gospel of John. Uh, or if you have your iPad or phone, you can search for it on there, the Gospel of John. And there, th- th- there are two stories. One of them is the story of an insider. This is a religious guy. He's kind of in, you know, in the club, uh, got his life all together. And then there's an outsider. More than that, just an outcast. Someone who you'll see is, uh, for a lot of good reasons, the kind of person that you would probably turn around if you saw in the hall and go the other way. You, you, you wouldn't tend to interact with. And what he answers, I would suggest by looking at these two together, is what's wrong with the world the way it is? That's like a big question. Every single religion, every philosophy starts with a certain understanding of what's broken. And usually the philosophy or the, philosophy or the religion or the worldview is, well, here's what we need to do in response to that. Here's, here's how we go about fixing that. And so we have to understand what's wrong first before we look at the you know, following weeks. Okay, what is the solution? Uh, diagnosis before prescription. In the third chapter of John, Jesus meets this highly moral uh, insider. He's a, he's a civic, religious leader. And in the, in the next chapter, he meets this uh, social, moral, religious outsider who, who happens to be a woman. We tend to see these two stories separately, but what I want to suggest is if, if we look at them together, I think they're kind of addressing two, two sides of the same coin of what's broken, what's really wrong with the world. Now, let me kind of spoil it, Jesus' answer for you in a way. I'll just kind of tell you what he's going to If you have to leave, I'll just give you the answer right now. He says sin. Now, if you're a Westerner who's grown up in post-Christian America and you've had just enough of the Bible to be inoculated to it and a lot of kind of you know, weird experiences with Christians, this word kind of makes you recoil. You, you get kind of uneasy with it. And I would, I would say for good reason. Like I totally understand why that would be the response. Because see, this word sin... Or sinner, it's, it's been used by a lot of religious people to kind of marginalize, don't you think? Like certain portions of our society or certain people. Because if, I, if, I, if I'm talking to you and you, you, know, I, well, you don't just disagree with me, you're a sinner. And I kind of say it like that and look down my nose and you know, change my tone of voice. Implying you are and I'm not. 
well, then I can kind of climb onto this false high moral ground and kind of cast judgment down at anyone else who doesn't agree with me, who, who doesn't hold to the things that I, that I do. So these words have been sometimes used to ostracize people, to, to marginalize people. Um, now, obviously, I think this understanding of, of sin or sinner is, is both false and unbiblical. And that's actually what I would suggest what Jesus goes about deconstructing in this passage as he does this here. So read with me, if you would. We're going we're gonna to look at John um, chapter 4. First of all, I actually want to look at the second encounter first, and then we'll go back to the previous one. In John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7, but just to kind of give you the context. And I want to start with this one because this is, this is the picture of sin that everyone's going to recognize. Oh, yeah, that's a sinner for sure. So Jesus is traveling with his disciples through an area called Samaria. This is outside of Judea. When he gets to the town, his disciples leave to get something to eat. Jesus is tired. He's worn out. He's weary from the travel. He's he's also thirsty. And so it's about the sixth hour of the day. That's noon. The sun's at the highest place. It's the hottest time of the day. And, And so he goes to a well, we're told, because he's thirsty. But he has no way of getting the water out of the well because he doesn't have a water jar. But then a solitary woman comes to draw water from the well. And he says this, John chapter 4, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, we're told. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, we're told. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Now, before we continue, I I want us to see how incredible, almost ridiculous, what's already happened here, this conversation Already is. Now, the first unexpected part in this account is that Jesus makes the radical move of actually initiating a conversation with this woman. Notice, notice she's shocked. Okay, we're not shocked by it because we're in a different culture, but she herself is a bit shocked that he's even speaking to her because, see, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. Centuries before, a couple centuries before, when Babylon came in and kind of laid siege to Israel 
and took the best and the brightest of the Jews back to Babylon, so they were in exile. Some of the Jews who stayed there, who weren't taken, some of them intermarried with the Canaanites around. And so kind of racially, they're kind of half-breeds. And then what they did is they took kind of parts of the Jewish faith and they took parts of the Canaanite faith and they kind of put it together into this sort of syncretistic new religion, started kind of their, their own tribe. And these are the Samaritans. So the Jews considered Samaritans um, racially inferior. Uh, they, they were certainly theologically heretics. And... Um, And so the first reason that he's even engaging this is a bit of a surprise. But on top of that, it was scandalous for for a Jewish religious male in this day to talk to a strange woman in public. That that was absolutely scandalous. Now, even more, you add to that, we're told in text that she had come to the well at what time of the day? Noon. Okay. Hottest time of the day. Now, any, any biblical... A commentator scholar will tell you women typically did not go at that time of the day. It's the hottest time of the day. They would typically tend to go early to have water to last all throughout the day. So why is she there when she knows no one else will be there? Well, she wouldn't run into any other women. She was a moral outcast. She's a complete outsider. And we get a, a picture into that life and, and possibly why, what sorts of Labels are thrown around when she walks by, the looks that she gets, the disgust, and that sort of thing. So she's, she's an outcast even among the Samaritans who are outcasts. She's like the bottom of the totem pole. In the most marginalized group, she's the most marginalized person that you can possibly imagine. So think about it. When Jesus begins to speak to her, he's stepping over like every single boundary that is appropriate, it seems. A racial boundary? A cultural boundary, a gender boundary, even a moral boundary. And again, the convention of that day is that a good Jewish male would have nothing to do with her. Now, the second really interesting feature about this encounter is that though he's, he's, clearly, he's clearly open to her, he's warm, he's kind, he still confronts her. He's still confronting her, but he does it in a gentle way. He, he does it in a really artful way. Way. He begins by saying this, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water, and if you drank that water, you would never be thirsty again. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Right? That's what she's wondering too, right? What, what in the world are you talking about? Now, he, he's speaking metaphorically here, using um, water, or living water as he calls it, to refer to eternal life. Now, the image is kind of lost on us. If, if, if you grew up here in the States, we have ready access to drinking water just about anywhere we go. Remember like when they first started selling bottled water? Didn't that seem absurd? Like you're charging me for water? That's crazy. You know, I'm still kind of bothered by it. I don't like the idea of paying for water. Because it's just so readily available to us. Most of us know very little about true thirst. Now, if you, if you grew up in, in a more arid climate like this that's next to a desert which israel is this is this is a very well-known experience and see because our bodies contain so much water to be in profound uh, thirst is profound agony and after you've gone for a long time without water to get a drink for the first time to 
It's so satisfying. Um, here's what I want you to do. Uh, we do this every week. And again, it don't, don't feel weird or anything like that. But I want you to take three minutes. We're going to put a countdown clock on the two side screens. I want you to turn to your table. And I want you to just ask this question, just answer it around the table. And again, just if there's six of you, we've got three minutes, just take 30 seconds, no more. But what's the thirstiest you've ever been in your life? And, or if you don't want to answer that question, what is your favorite drink when you are thirsty? Okay? Three minutes, and then we'll pull back together.
Okay. How many, how many of you got thirsty having this conversation? <laughs> you just start thinking about it and your mouth starts watering like, I'm thirsty. I'm dehydrated, I think. Anyone, Coke or Pepsi? Anyone like, how about Coke? Pepsi. Uh, ooh, okay, a little battle going on here, right? Um, I saw Pastor Scott in here earlier. I'm sure his, his was Mountain Dew. That guy just drinks Mountain Dew like you would not believe. If you ever want to bribe Pastor Scott, just buy him a six-pack of Mountain Dew. He will just melt in your, in your hands. I was, I was talking, um, I had asked Dr. Matt Hickey, Many of you know him. He's, he's been here before, taught classes, and taught on Wednesday nights as, as well. He, he's the director of the Human Performance Lab at CSU. And I was asking him just some questions about water and the body and, and all that. And he, he was telling me that 55 to 65% of your body weight is made up of water. Do you realize that? That you can get dehydrated when you lose only 2% of your body's water weight. Water makes up 90% of your blood and it's the major component of nearly all the cells in your body in fact without adequate water we can't even regulate our body temperature and then he was telling me that that for each gram of sweat like when you sweat and then and then that sweat evaporates on your skin you you transfer about 0.5 calories out of your body you know you know it cools you down to the, to the environment. Do you realize that? But, of course, you know, you're saying if sweat drips off, you don't get the same thing, so it has to evaporate. And I started thinking, I mean, you guys, you guys you were walking around in people's sweat, evaporated sweat? Isn't that nasty? Just, that's gross. I turn to the person next to you and say, please do not sweat tonight while, while you're sitting here. I don't want to breathe it. I don't want to breathe it. So here's the question. If Jesus is bringing up this issue of, of a person who... who who understands the, the need for water, understands that, that thirst is this deep kind of body agony, and he's making a connection to kind of a soul thirst. What is, what's Jesus saying to this outcast as she's drawing water at the well? See, he's saying this. I've got something for you that is so basic, it is so necessary to you spiritually, just like water is to you physically something without which you you will absolutely die and shrivel up and be in agony in your life but see this metaphor of of living water means more than just than just that jesus isn't isn't just saying it's really helpful and you need it he is saying that but one thing that's so important here that he says is he's also revealing that this water satisfies from the inside Something totally different than any, lots of things satisfy us. I'm satisfied by lots of things in my life. This is the only thing, though, that he says the satisfaction happens internally by almost a, a sort of you know, chemical soul reaction inside you. See, my water, if you get it, Jesus says, will become in you, he uses this language of a spring. And again, think about a person who lives in a desert area. A spring of living water. This is deep soul satisfaction but it's the kind of soul satisfaction that that doesn't depend on circumstances and that's what's so different about this it doesn't depend on the exterior if if someone were to walk into this room and were to ask you the question what what would it take to to like really really satisfy you like like what what would make you happy in life what would 
What would satisfy you? Almost all of us would start by thinking of things outside of ourselves. We, we would go to romantic love. Uh, we, we would go to career you know, desires and passions and aspirations. We might go to some sort of a, a social or political cause, achieving certain things. We might go to money, things that we could do, places we could go, vacations, influence, power, status, lots of things we would go to. But whatever it is that, that we would say, you know, when I have that, once I get there, once I achieve that, then I will feel secure. I will really feel significant in life. Um, most likely, all those things will be outside of yourself. Things on the outside of you. But yet Jesus says, there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the thirst that is deep down inside of you. And, and sort of keeping this water metaphor, it's like you don't need to splash water on your face what you need is when water comes from even deeper down inside than the thirst. That's the only thing. See, Jesus is saying, I can give it to you. I can give that to you. I can put it in you. I can give you absolute, unfathomable satisfaction, but at the core of who you are, the inside part, the part that is always longing and searching and grasping, that part, regardless of what happens outside of you. Regardless of circumstances. Now here's, you know, you kind of hear that and, you know, you might think, oh, sure, that sounds really good. But, you know, realistically, I don't, you know, I don't know if I really believe it or I don't, I don't really live in accord with that. Here, here's how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true. And you don't just have to take Jesus' word for it if you're, if you're unsure about him being an authority figure. Listen to people who have achieved their greatest goals in life. Here's an example. Um, years ago, the great tennis uh, player, Boris Becker, said this. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It is that old song of movie stars and pop stars so unhappy. He said, but I had no winter peace. Now, you might kind of hear that and go, well, I'd rather have his problems and my problems, you know, I'd, I'd rather do that. That's not the, the point is this. He has the same problems that you and I have. None of those things, the exterior, the outside things, none of those, I, I mean, they were satisfying to a degree, but it, it didn't get to the core, this core thirst, dissatisfaction, longing, deep longing problem that we all have. In fact, what you'll find, anytime you go to people who are ultimately successful and who kind of thought from the start, once I get that, I'll, I'll be happy, getting it actually amplifies the emptiness because they're finally disillusioned. Their whole lives, they, they sort of thought, okay, this, this inner anxiety I have, they mistook that for drive. And this, and this sort of hollowness inside them, they, must, they mistook that for hope. But once they realize it's done, the emptiness comes and they realize, oh, my goodness. Maybe the best example I can give, there was an American um, novelist by the name of David Foster Wallace. Not, not a religious man at all. He got to the very top of his profession. 
Um, he was an award-winning, best-selling uh, postmodern novelist. He had these kind of boundary-breaking stories. He, he one time wrote a sentence that was a thousand words long. <laughs> uh, this is a guy who kind of had it all. And a few years before his death, he gave a commencement speech that's now quite famous at Kenyon College. And let me read for you his words, what he said to the graduating class. He said, again, this non-religious man, he said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. That's so interesting. Wallace was not a religious person, and yet he understood. Everyone builds their identity on something. That's what he meant by worship. Every single person does every single person looks to it for their, again, let's use a religious word for it, looks to it for their salvation, for their sense of purpose, for their identity. Now, a couple years after giving this speech, Wallace killed himself. Isn't that interesting? And this non-religious man's parting words are terrifying. Something will eat you alive. Because even though you might not call it worship, you can be absolutely sure, you can be absolutely sure, you can be absolutely sure you are worshiping something. There's something you are building your identity on. And Jesus says, unless you're worshiping me, unless I am at the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through all these other things as great as they may be, unless you see that solution must come inside an inside change rather than an exterior sort of change. Whatever you worship, it will abandon you in the end. And in Wallace's words, it will eat you alive. Satisfying this inner thirst is, is the kind of promise that Jesus is making to this Samaritan woman. And she's, she's intrigued. <laughs> I mean, the trap is sort of set. He's, he's offering her a great thing and she's kind of, well, yeah, I'm definitely looking for happiness. I'm definitely looking for fulfillment. And so she responds immediately, what is this living water? Would you give it to me? And Jesus responds. This is such an interesting response. Jesus says, go get your husband. And she goes, I don't, I don't, I don't have one. He goes, yeah, you're right. You, you've had five. The one you're with now, he's, he's not, he's not your husband. Um, why does he, why does he change subjects? Why does Jesus seem to shift what he's talking about, inner ache and longing and thirst, and then, he, and, then he, and then he goes to her relational history, as muddy as it is? The answer is he's not changing the subject. 
He's trying to help her to connect the dots. He's trying to nudge her to see that if, if you want to understand the nature of this living water, that's what you're asking about, right? You really want to know how it works? You want to know what it's like that I'm offering you? Then you need to first understand how you've been seeking it in your own life. You need to understand the dead ends first if you want to know what road actually goes somewhere. You've been trying to get it through men, and how's that been working for you? Your need for men, your need for fill in the blank, he's saying, will eat you alive. It will destroy you. And she doesn't have to be too convinced of that. She knows that. She's like, look where I'm at. Look what I'm doing. Middle of the day, I can't even engage in normal society. At this point, she's she's shocked by his knowledge, and she responds, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And then then she asks one of the great theological questions of the day between Samaritans and Jews, because they had different temples. And so there's this big debate, where's the appropriate place to worship? She says, we Samaritans worship here at the temple, and the Jews worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Who's right? And in verse 21 through 24, Jesus responds with this remarkable answer that could kind of be summarized like this if you read on. He says, the time's coming when you're not going to need a physical temple to actually worship and encounter God. It's coming. And she says, well, yeah, I get that. You know, when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. You know, let's just kind of wait for that. And he finally drops the bomb. And he says, I, the one speaking to you, am he, meaning that one who will explain all things, who will set all things right. Now, let's, let's turn from this encounter here and kind of leave it hanging a little bit and, and, and look at the encounter not with the outcast but with the insider. And I want to read real quickly John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 1 um, through 7. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again. Now, look, look for just a second. Think about this. If you think about these two different people, he encounters this, this woman, and then, and then he encounters uh, Nicodemus. Look at the contrast with which he is approaching these two people and the difference there. The woman, he starts off very, very gentle. He surprises her with, with, with his openness to her, and then he slowly, slowly confronts her with her spiritual need now this religious leader nicodemus um he's he's more forceful he's he's more direct nicodemus begins with courtesy ah rabbi uh people say very good things about you you're clearly sent from god people highly respect you you're you're wise in many of the things that you do but jesus confronts nicodemus right up front after this and says you need to be born again Nicodemus, who has spent his whole life worshiping God, according to the strict Jewish tradition, like this could be kind of offensive 
right? He comes to this man, you know, born again. That's where this phrase comes from. Um, if Again, if you've been kind of in the culture, whether it be Christian culture or not, this, this phrase born again sometimes has some kind of odd connotations to it. Lots of times people think, well, born again, that, that, that must be a certain kind of person. That must be like the kind of person who's just really broken, like, you know, weaker maybe than the rest of us or more needy. Uh, and so they kind of go toward, you know, authoritarian structures and they need, they need order because their lives are just a mess and they can't hold their lives together. So they need almost, a, you know, like a seismic uh, some, you know, sort of conversion experience because they're these sort of weaker, needier, messed up, broken people. That, that, that must be what these born-again people are. The problem is the text doesn't really allow us to view it that way. Think about who he said this to. Nicodemus is a civic leader, a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is, is the assembly of, of the Hebrew high court judges. Um, he's very prosperous. He's devout. He's a Pharisee. I mean, that's, that's like a pretty good pedigree. Um, and he's kind, of, he's kind of a good guy. He's, he's humble even, seeming, because he comes to Jesus and he calls Jesus an unschooled person, a rabbi. So he's, he's an admirable person. He's, he's kind of got it all pulled together. He's successful. He's disciplined. He's moral. He's religious and even kind of open-minded. And what does Jesus say? Well, he uses a different metaphor than he does with the woman, right? Um, with the woman, he goes after her, her um, lack of satisfaction in life. With Nicodemus, he kind of goes after his smug self-satisfaction in life. And so he has to use a different metaphor, a different picture to kind of go after each one of those. So here's Jesus' point to Nicodemus with the metaphor, with the whole born-again thing. He's asking him, um, how much did you have to do with uh, your birth, being born? Remember? Like, like what did you do to kind of add to that? Oh, nothing? So you weren't, you weren't born by your own skillful planning? So none of, none of your, your background and, and your morality and all these good things about you, your, none of that really helped or added to, not even a little bit? You realize, well, no, it's a complete gift. I didn't, I didn't do anything about it at all. You didn't contribute anything. It was a complete gift. That's what salvation is. You cannot contribute to it one iota. Not one bit. It doesn't matter how pulled together you are. It doesn't matter how, how kind you are, how, how respectful you are. Doesn't, it, it, none of that matters when it comes to salvation. So that's why he uses his picture of you need to be born again. You can't do anything to help it. Jesus is saying that, you know, you know those pimps and the prostitutes outside, out, out on the streets there? They're in the exact same spiritual condition as you are. What? That seems crazy. Yeah, you're both equally alienated from God. So admirable Nicodemus and this foolish, heretical woman who is like a relational train wreck, right? Both of them in the eyes of God are in the exact same spiritual condition. They both have to start from scratch. They both need to be born again. They both need eternal life, spiritual life that is a gift from God or something will eat them alive. Both of them, just different things. See, Jesus is working, and this is why I wrote this word up here, and I said, I, want to, I think Jesus kind of deconstructs it. Jesus is working on a deeper understanding of what sin is than most people 
are. See, according to Jesus, sin, sin is looking to something other than God for your salvation. It's, it's putting yourself in the place of God. That's, I mean, that's the first you know, commandment in, in the Ten Commandments. Don't have any other gods before me. Soren Kierkegaard, in, um, in his book, The Sickness Unto Death, I think for, for, for modern language and modern mind, maybe gets at the idea of what biblical sin is better than I've ever heard. I love this definition. Kierkegaard says, sin is simply building your identity on anything but God. That's what sin is. Sin is to build your identity on anything but God. So there's two ways to do that. You could, you could go this route, you know, the route that the woman did, uh, and you could break all the moral rules in pursuit of pleasure, in pursuit of just happiness, whatever fulfills you, you know, write the check, whatever you want. Break all the moral rules and build your identity on those things. Could be power, uh, reputation, status, career. This is, this is the irreligious way of sin. Then there's the religious way of sin. And this is where you sort of think that your good life and your moral achievement kind of requires God to bless you kind of requires God to answer your prayers the way you want them answered, right? But they're both, they're both sin. To build your identity on either one, this one just looks more respectable, so we don't really shirk at that one. This, this one seems quite obvious. And, and what Jesus is saying is these are two sides of the same coin. These are the two different ways that people tend to approach life where they're building their lives, their identity on something else other than God. It could be great things or it could be not so great things. It's all sin. It's all brokenness. And it all will eat you alive. So what's the solution? Well, we need to stop looking for pseudo-saviors. If, if you build your life on your children uh, and, then, and, and then they run away, you will be absolutely devastated. If you build your life on your spouse, uh, on your economic condition, on your beauty, on your morality, anything, and it fails you, you have no hope. Because every other Savior but Jesus is not a Savior. If your career fails you, it won't forgive you. If your career fails you, it'll punish you by shame uh, or kind of self-loathing. You know, you'll feel that way. Jesus is the only Savior... Who, if you gain him, you will get absolute soul satisfaction. And if you fail him, he'll forgive you. No other Savior does that. He's the only one. It's interesting. If you keep reading in John chapter 4, this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, she goes back to her community. She goes back to her friends and she's telling them. She's like, I, I found, remember that one that Moses wrote about, the one we've been talking about? I found the Messiah and he changed my life. And, he says, and she says, I want you to come meet him. And so she does that and brings him in there. But think about this last, last question here as we, as we close. Um, why did she find salvation at the well? You know why she found it? Because Jesus was thirsty, right? If he wouldn't have gone to the well looking for water, she wouldn't have met him. But here's a deeper question. Why was he thirsty? Well, he was thirsty because the divine Son of God the maker of heaven and earth, the maker of all water and land, who never knew thirst, 
poured himself out, descended into a world where he became a, a, a vulnerable mortal. And he became weary, we're told. He became thirsty. The Bible says that he took the effects of our sin upon him. That he was broken so we could be whole. He was, he was deserted so we could be brought in. He was thirsty so we could be satisfied. And he died so we could be born again. And he did it gladly. That's the gospel. And it's the same for this person, for this person, for doubters, for skeptics, for believers, for outsiders, insiders, and everyone else in between. That's the gospel. And that's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to look at how Jesus answered these massive big questions of life that aren't just interesting philosophically. These answers determine how you live your life, the choices you make, the relationships you build, and ultimately the satisfaction that you experience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, God, as we, as we come to your word, we kneel before it, God, longing to be taught. And Father, I thank you that, like that psalm that we read earlier, that, that you promise to instruct, to teach, to guide. This is kind of word that oftentimes we balk at, sinners. Because God, that's where we find ourselves. We're broken. We're messed up. Some of us are really good at hiding it. Some of us aren't so good at hiding it. But God, you welcome us. You came for the sick. You came for the broken. And there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are, who are broken and admit it, and those who are broken and don't. So, Father, we want to be transparent. God, thank you so much that, that you just you shower your love on us, your acceptance. God, that we are just so loved and accepted in Christ. And so we can live with the joy. Thank you, God, that you are changing us from the inside out. Lord, I pray that internally, God, we would encounter the living Christ so that we wouldn't be seeking after and running after all of these things that will, at the end of the day, eat us alive, but that we would find our ultimate significance and purpose in Christ so that regardless of what happens outwardly, our circumstances, we will have a buoyancy. We will have a, a, a steadiness, a firmness to us, God, that our faith in Christ would hold us no matter what might come. God, we, we trust you for that. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for community, that we're not alone in this journey and we have people around us that could help us, as we were saying earlier, Lord, to just to be people who pause and to reach out to others around us. May we be as Christ. We pray in his powerful name. Amen. Amen. You guys, thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, if you've got kids, go pick them up. You can come back and finish off all of our snacks and stuff before you, before you head home. I love you guys. Hopefully see you this Friday at the simulcast and in one of our classes on Sunday.